As we prepare to hear God's holy and errant and fallible word, let us now turn and ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this, your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, we pray. Amen. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles, really the Acts of the Holy Spirit, chapter 23. We're going to start at verse 12 and read through 22 as we continue our sermon series through Acts. Dearly beloved, hear the word of the Lord. It is written. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister... Paul's nephew, heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink Till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Immediately after Jesus appeared to Paul in verse 12, verse 11 rather, which was our focus last Sunday, we read these words in verse 12, when it was day. So Luke now situates us just a few short hours later, and if we're reading through the narrative without stopping, then we find the ongoing significance of Jesus' appearing to Paul. Because what happened the very next morning after Jesus appeared? Verse 12 here. The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they killed Paul. So this encouragement given to Paul by Jesus that Jesus was 
present with Paul and that Jesus had a plan for Paul, this revelation that Paul was to find himself in Rome to give faithful witness to Jesus was very quickly needed to sustain Paul through his next very serious trial. And we shouldn't miss that Luke is presenting to us God's sovereign control over the situation. We are seeing and will see how God's sovereign plan prevails despite evil schemes. We are seeing and will see how God even uses evil schemes for the sake of fulfilling his purposes. But rather than preaching that sermon this morning, I I want us to consider this plot against Paul's life in particular especially as it helps us to contemplate where our commitments lie. You see, there's a certain kind of ridiculousness about this malicious scheming. I think that we can all pretty easily see it, at least in part. This group of men have bound themselves by an oath to fast from eating and drinking until they had assassinated Paul. And that's not only in evil oath for one to take, but it's also an exceedingly foolish oath simply from a practical standpoint. Because even if we don't know yet what exactly happened next, we do know that they didn't kill Paul. So let me ask you this question. What's the question that immediately comes to your mind as you read this text? We want to know, well, did they uphold their oath? Did these men ultimately die of starvation or probably more likely dehydration? This is what we want to know, isn't it? It highlights just how ridiculous the whole thing is. There seemed to be no thought given to what would happen if the plan of theirs didn't play out as they had hoped. And it didn't, not even close. But we really probably don't even know the half of it. You see, the English rendering of this phrase that they had bound themselves by an oath doesn't really do justice to its magnitude. The Greek word used here is anathematizo. Anathematizo. This is where we get our word anathema, as in a curse. And this is precisely what these men did. They bound themselves under a curse. The oath was, let us be anathema. Let us be cursed. Let us be eternally damned if we don't kill Paul. It is an oath they were taking before God and which was carried out with religious fervor. They were fasting practicing this religious discipline as part of this oath, as they sought to carry out this evil plan. This was their level of commitment to killing Paul. It wasn't simply a fleeting aspiration. It wasn't carried out half-heartedly. No, they were fully committed to this plan. Luke wants us to see this, right? This is why he doesn't just tell us of the plan once or even twice. He repeats the plan three times for us in these verses. We see the same details that we got in verse 12, again in verse 14, and then again in verse 21. 
He doesn't have to present the narrative in this way to give us an accurate historical account of what happened. We got the point of the plan in verses 12 through 15, but he's trying to draw our attention to something here. He's up to something. What is it? Well, if nothing else, he wants to emphasize this plan to us to the highest degree. Remember, repetition is used to reveal the quality or degree of something. This is how you make a superlative. God isn't just holy. God isn't just holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. God is the highest degree of holy. So what is being emphasized here? Is it the wickedness of the plan? Is this the superlative of stupidity? Well, perhaps. But this plan is also revealing to us the highest degree of commitment. It was a commitment such that these men were willing to give their lives for. And I think we can pretty easily see that it is the highest degree of misplaced commitment. These men committed themselves to something that was leading to their destruction, whether or not they failed or succeeded. If they had failed, if, and they did fail, they would either carry through and die or break their oath before God. That's a dangerous thing. If they succeeded, what would the Romans have done to those who had killed someone in their protection? A Roman citizen. Either way, they were dooming themselves. And there aren't just one or two people committed to this plan, are there? How many are involved with this plan to kill Paul? Verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. This is another detail that Luke repeats for us. We are informed again in verse 21 that it was more than 40 who were involved. Pay attention to these details, brothers and sisters. The number 40 is significant. Luke could have said there were 54 men who were involved in this plot. He doesn't do that. He uses the number 40. Is this simply coincidence? Well, consider this. The number 40 appears 150 times in the Bible. I can't think of a single case in which that number is insignificant. Sometimes this number is used in conjunction with trial and testing. The Israelites wandered in the desert for how long? 40 years. Jesus fasted in the wilderness for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. Sometimes it's used in conjunction with God's judgment. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights when God flooded the earth during the time of Noah. Jonah warned the people of Nineveh that God would rain down his judgment in 40 days. 40 is the maximum number of lashes one could receive under Jewish law. The number 40 also seems to represent a large amount, or in the case of days or years, a long time. Moses was on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights. Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days. Saul, David, Solomon all reigned for how long? 40 years. Jesus continued to appear to his followers for how long after his resurrection? 40 days. 
With the significance of the number 40 in the Bible, it seems very unlikely that Luke's use of that number here is simply to provide historical accuracy to this account. It's very intentional. And it might be pointing to Paul's trials and testing at this point. It could be pointing to God's judgment against those who seek to defy him. Luke might also be using this number to represent that this was a large number of people. Not only a lot of people, it was more than a lot of people. More than 40. So perhaps Luke intends to point us to all three of these things, but it's evident that it wasn't simply one or two people. It wasn't simply a few people. It was many people. It was a crowd. And Scripture warns us about crowds and commitments. Exodus 23.2 states, You shall not fall in with the many who do evil. Or how about Proverbs 1, which speaks almost directly to this incident here in Acts 23. Solomon states, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason like Sheol. Let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods and shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set in ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. The Proverbs warn us against this very thing happening here in Acts 23. They warn us that going along mindlessly with the crowds leads to our destruction. And we might think that we would never fall in such an evil plot. We would surely never follow people who were so blinded by their hatred, so defiant against God, so obviously in the wrong. And hopefully, that is true of us. But this passage should pose a question to us about our commitments. It serves to paint this obvious picture to help us to see what is perhaps not so obvious about ourselves. It works sort of like the word picture the prophet Nathan delivers to King David when he shares the story of a a rich and powerful man who unjustly takes and slaughters a poor man's one little ewe lamb rather than taking one from his own herd to feed a guest who had come to visit him. And what happens when when Nathan finishes his story? David is incensed and declared, as the Lord lives The man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And what was Nathan's response? You are the man. God had given David so much and yet David still committed this great sin of taking another man's wife and then to cover his sin, he had that man killed. As God speaking through Nathan Nathan asks, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do evil in his sight? 
If this could be true of David, then how much more would it be true of those for whom the Lord Jesus Christ had come and suffered and died? God has given his very son to us and for us that we might know the immeasurable riches of his grace. Jesus Christ has given his own life as a ransom for us that we might be forgiven of our sins and delivered from the wrath of God. He has died in our place that we might be restored to relationship with God. What has been our response? Have we committed our lives to him? Or have we committed ourselves to other things? And listen, our commitments might not be murderous as the schemes of this group here, but they still might be leading us to destruction. The reality is that Jesus warns his followers that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. If we have not responded to God's grace by placing faith in Jesus and committing ourselves to follow him in the way that leads to life, setting Christ as the priority of our lives, making Christ our singular focus, then our lives are on a path of destruction. If we are following the pattern of the world, then we are on the wide path. Luke is painting a picture of where going along with the crowd gets us. And what was the crowd's commitment to fast toward this end of killing Paul, but a perversion of what our devotion before the Lord really should look like? It was a mockery of true devotion. It was not to serve the Lord. It was not to give glory to him. It was pursued for their own selfish ends. And anything that we are committing ourselves to, not to serve the Lord, not to give glory to God, but to accomplish some other end, to pursue personal pleasure, to pursue personal glory, to pursue worldly wealth and comfort, mocks the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And it could be that we are out there just pursuing worthless things with great devotion and religious fervor while neglecting our commitment to Jesus Christ. Beloved, Scripture warns us of this. The Apostle Paul told the Galatians, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So brothers and sisters, this text presses us to consider where our commitments lie. Are you following the ways of the world? Or are you following Jesus Christ? The passage is challenging us to consider these questions. So what I want to do in my time remaining this morning, I want us to consider what commitment to Jesus Christ according to God's word really looks like. If we are to examine ourselves against God's word, then we need to know what it says. So I want to lift up three characteristics of commitment to Christ for us to consider. First, our commitment to Christ should be complete. Our commitment to Christ should be complete. 
God did not call us out of darkness into his marvelous light that we would half-heartedly follow his son. No, if we are children of God, then we are called to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind. Jesus calls us the first and greatest commandment. And if we truly love Christ, then we will obey his commandments. Commitment to Christ isn't simply a commitment to believe in Jesus. It's also a commitment to obey all that he commanded. And we are to obey with every fiber of our being. This means that what the Christian is called to is complete devotion, full allegiance, total surrender and submission. God doesn't intend for us to live with one foot in the darkness and one foot in the light. Jesus didn't die for us that we might be freed from the power of sin, that we would continue to live according to the ways of the world. We were not given the Holy Spirit that we could, would continue to live our lives devoid of obedience to God. Now, that doesn't mean that we are expected to live perfect lives, but it also doesn't mean that we can be lackadaisical or lazy in our devotion and in our obedience. Pursuing Jesus is an intentional act. No one accidentally lives a life of obedience to Christ. And we know how to live with intentionality, don't we? How many of you have accidentally gone on vacation? Anybody? You just find yourself at the beach without any planning? You deer hunters and duck hunters? Am I stepping on toes? Are you lazily preparing for hunting season? Come November, are you going to find yourself in a stand or a blind with no previous effort? Business owners, you careless about running your business? Are you able to sustain and grow your business while failing to keep accurate books? Failing to maintain relationships with clients? Failing to support your employees? Failing to keep inventory up to date? Let me ask you this now. Are you intentional about your relationship with Christ? As intentional as you are about these other things? Scripture calls us to pursue Christ with greater intentionality than we pursue our own pleasures and ends. We must be committed to Christ in a superior way than we are to amusing ourselves, promoting ourselves, pampering ourselves. And these Things shouldn't interfere with our commitment to Christ. So don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not saying that there's necessarily anything wrong with taking a vacation once in a while or working hard at our business or enjoying some time in the woods. But there are many who claim the name of Christ who are working really hard to live a good American life while taking it easy in their obedience to Jesus and his kingdom. And in the process, they have forsaken Christ. They are as foolish as the crowds who pursue Paul's life. True discipleship requires commitment, full commitment. As Charles Spurgeon commented, no one will ever become like the Lord Jesus by happy accident. Scripture uses words like draw near, persevere, fight, strive, Walk, encourage, stand firm, hold fast, obey, work, 
put to death, adorn, serve, labor. These are the verbs of the Christian life. And Jesus tells us that his true followers will pick up the cross and follow him. Picking up the cross means that we are all in. We are willing each and every day to die to ourselves, to die to our desire to live for ourselves, to die to the temptation to pursue our own ends, to die to the temptation to go along and get along. We're willing to give up everything for the sake of Jesus Christ. Picking up the cross isn't accomplished then with only partial commitment. It's done with great intentionality. Second, Our commitment to Christ should not be limited to convenience. Our commitment to Christ should not be limited to convenience. In his parable of the soils, Jesus commented that there would be ones who would hear and respond to the word of God only to fall away when troubles and persecution came. They were the seeds fallen on rocky soil that would quickly spring up, would get excited about the thought of following Jesus but in whom faith would never really take root in their hearts. And the reason for this is that they have no place for suffering in their idea of discipleship and in their commitment to Christ. And man, being saved from our sins sounds really nice when it means absolutely nothing from us. We can utter a prayer show up for worship every once in a while, and other than that, we can just live our lives like everyone else. But beloved, that's not how faith works. True faith in Jesus means humbly submitting ourselves to him. It means fleeing from our sins. It means loving him and seeking to obey him. And that doesn't mean that somehow we are saved by works or that works are adding anything to our salvation, but it does mean, as James says, faith without works is dead. Faith without a commitment willing to suffer is not true faith. So here's the reality. Following Jesus isn't always easy. In fact, sometimes it's downright difficult. The path that leads to the narrow gate is a hard road. Not just because it's hard to deny ourselves, but also because following Jesus can draw the scorn of the world. Commit to Christ commitment to Christ is not convenient, it is costly. True commitment to Christ, though, doesn't quit when things get difficult. True commitment to Christ doesn't simply follow Jesus when things are easy, when material blessings are being poured out, when we are healthy, when the Christian faith is socially acceptable. True commitment remains faithful when everything seems to be going wrong, when financial hardship comes. When relationships fall apart, when disease is discovered or chronic illness persists, when loved ones die, these things reveal the character and quality of our faith. Think about who's being shown as a true disciple here in Acts 23. It's Paul. He's the only one. He isn't living some hashtag blessed life, is he? Paul is the one being beaten. He's the one in prison. He's the one facing threats against his life. He is a pretty clear picture that commitment to Christ is costly. And what does Paul say to the Philippians? For his sake, for the sake of Jesus Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things. All things. I count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ. This is how precious Christ is for the believer. So if you're looking to live a comfortable life and die a comfortable death, then Christian discipleship isn't for you. Jesus fought with Satan in the wilderness to deliver you from the idol of convenience. He fought this battle for our sake that we might have access to a better kingdom than the kingdom of this world. And Jesus died on the cross to save you from a comfortable death. As nice as a comfortable death sounds, it doesn't lead to nice things. Third and finally, our commitment to Christ should not be conditional. Our commitment to Christ should not be conditional. Another way to say that is that our commitment to Christ should be, should be one that is willing at every moment, in every circumstance, at all costs, to obey and serve the Lord. There's a moment in Luke's gospel in which Luke records Jesus' response to those who come to him without full devotion. In Luke 9, we find this. As they, Jesus and the disciples, were going along the road, someone said to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's a hard words. And in other words, Jesus warns that following him might mean going without, perhaps even things that we would consider basic necessities. Following him requires reevaluating reevaluating priorities and other commitments, even at times, to family. We must understand that there is no priority, there is no commitment, which should supersede our commitment to Christ. And following Jesus is a present calling. It isn't something that can be put off to tomorrow. In other words, there should be no conditions preventing our present commitment to Christ. If we are honest with ourselves, though, we might find that we procrastinate in our commitment to the Lord. We'll tell ourselves that we will seek the Lord and serve Him once circumstances are met, once the time is right. We say things to ourselves like, I'll start seeking to follow the Lord when I get out of school. When I have my education, then I'll, I'll finally be able to pursue what God is calling me to. And then we say, when I make enough money and I get some financial stability, then, then I'll pursue the Lord's calling. And then we say, when I retire from my job, then I'll have time to pursue faithfulness to the Lord. But the opportunity never comes, does it? There are always other things to commit ourselves to that serve as obstacles to following Jesus. And sometimes these things seem like really worthy things like work and family. Interesting. Those are two things that Jesus alludes to for those giving excuses to following him. 
The reality is that circumstances never seem to favor faithfulness. The time never seems right to surrender our plans to follow Jesus. There's always something else to do. There's always somewhere else to be. There's never a free moment. Dearly beloved, if you are waiting for the perfect moment, if you keep telling yourself tomorrow, it'll never come. Charles Spurgeon once said, tomorrow. Oh, that cursed word tomorrow. How has man made thee cursed? I find thee not in the almanac of the wise. Thou art only in the calendar of fools tomorrow. There is no such thing except in dreamland. For when, it, when that comes, which we call tomorrow, it will be today. And still forever, today, 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 there is no time but that which is. Brothers and sisters, we have today, we have only today, right now, to repent and to place faith in Jesus Christ. We have only today to follow him in, in trust and obedience. That is all we have. There is no promise of another opportunity. And if we are delaying, then we are on the path that is wide and leads to destruction. Don't fool yourself. So I want to encourage you this morning. Repent. Repent of your half-heartedness. Repent of your lackadaisical attitude to discipleship. And place faith in Christ. I want to urge you to commit yourself fully to him today. Stop living for yourself and live for the Lord. Receive God's grace in Jesus Christ and find true life set free from your sin, set free from a life lived to worthless ends, set free to live to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, repent and follow the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come acknowledging, Lord, that we have at times and maybe even right now followed you only when it's convenient. We have followed you half-heartedly. Our obedience to you has depended on whether or not there was pain involved. And so, Lord, we come and we repent of that. We turn to you. Lord, we commit ourselves fully to you. Lord, we pray for your mercy on us. Lord, we pray that we would mock your grace no more, but that we would follow hard after you with all that we are, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our mind, that we would commit ourselves to loving you. Lord, by your spirit, help us to do that. It's only by your spirit that we can do that. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered 
The resurrection of the 